God does not despair of our dysfunction. I stole that line from another priest. But it's an important principle for us to hold on to, to look at the sacrifice of Isaac. Who here has ever received an adequate explanation of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac that puts your mind to rest with that shocking request from God? Nobody. That's not good. Okay, well, I'm going to try tonight and make it all clear for you for the rest of your lives. What's happening here? Why would God make what seems like such a ludicrous request of Abraham? Why does God ask this of him? Well, this actually embodies, I think, a lot of, a lot of people's struggles with the Old Testament that kind of captured in our mind is this idea that God in the Old Testament is harsh, angry, vengeful, and then we get to the New Testament with Jesus and everything is roses and love and wonderful and peace and harmony. Well, neither are true. Yes, everything that surrounds Jesus is love because he is the Son of God incarnate and he is without sin. But you don't have to very, go very far from Jesus with the apostles to start to see the dysfunction that exists in the church around him. And then if you go to the Old Testament, the word that is most used throughout the Old Testament is hased, which is love or mercy. So why do we have this idea that God is harsh, angry, vengeful in the Old Testament? Abraham is given a promise by God, right? What he gives him, promises him two things. Promises him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and he promises him a land for his people to dwell in. So Abraham's like, great, good deal. This sounds great. But then he goes, well, if I'm going to have descendants, then I need to have a child, and my wife can't bear children. So I beg her to figure out another way to have a child besides my wife. And then he goes and hooks up with Hagar, and Ishmael is born. And then Abraham goes, okay, so I'm supposed to have land, so God is leading me to this land that I'm supposed to go to, but I'm not sure how to deal with the people when I get there. So Sarah, my wife, um, I'm going to tell them that you're my sister so that I can use you as a bargaining chip to make sure that we're okay and safe in this newfound land. That's Abraham leading up to God making this request of him. Now God says, I've given you a son. I've given you land, even though you tried to do it your own way. Now I'm asking you, give me the son back. First, this request is about seeing if Abraham really trusts God, because he didn't before. The promise of descendants, the promise of land, is all tied up in his son Isaac. And God is saying, give him back to me. Do you trust that even if you give Isaac back to me, I can fulfill the promise that I make you? What's also tied up in here is child sacrifice was not foreign to their mind. Child sacrifice was a regular thing that was done to appease the gods in times of famine or in drought to try to change things. They would take their firstborn child and offer them to 
God as they knew him. And so this wasn't something that was totally foreign to the life of Abraham. God is using this to draw Abraham into relationship with him. And then when he gets there and he sees Abraham's faith, that he's willing to let go of his only son and to trust that God will fulfill the promise of descendants even if Isaac isn't here anymore, God goes, now you learn. Now you know. God uses the dysfunction of the human life to bring about his grace. And the reason that that's important is because the Old Testament and the way that God works and reveals himself is much more similar to the way that God works and reveals himself to us today than in the time of Jesus in the Gospels. That was a privileged time. What happens too often for us is we see dysfunction and we impose that on God. That's what we end up doing in the Old Testament. We see the way that God is working through imperfection. We go, why is God doing these nasty things? When what he's actually doing is he's using the dysfunction of human life to lead us into grace. He's using the dysfunction of child sacrifice, of Abraham's lack of trust, to lead him to properly understand what faith in God means. God's grace is working through the dysfunction. And then St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans today, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But I think often what creeps into our mind in our Christian life is, if God is for us, then why does the dysfunction of life make me feel that he's against me? Why does the suffering, the imperfection of life make it feel like God is acting against me? This is what the transfiguration is about, right? Jesus, just before this, has explained to his apostles that he has to suffer and die. They don't get it. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up Mount Tabor, and he's transfigured before them. How is he transfigured? He appears to Peter, James, and John in the same way that he will appear to them after he's risen from the grave. And then, what does Jesus say? Don't tell anybody about this. And the apostles kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. What happens? Peter and James, when the cross comes, completely forget how God's grace is working through the dysfunction. Only John remembers. Only John is left at the cross because only John sees how God's grace is still present in the midst of what is imperfect. Have you ever looked at the imperfect saints? And I'm not talking about the saints that had like a sordid past and then had a massive conversion and became these great saints. I'm talking about the saints that throughout their entire life were rather imperfect, because they exist. St. Paul, first among them. St. Paul, this great saint who fills most of the New Testament with his letters, started his ministry with Barnabas. They were a tag team, going out and spreading the gospel. They couldn't get along. They had to go separate ways. 
because they kept disagreeing with each other. They're both saints in the church. Saint Therese of Lisieux. We kind of have to read between the lines because the only thing that we know from her is her autobiography. But what's clear in her writings about herself and about her life is she suffered from some form of anxiety or nervous disorder. Some people go so far to say is depression. I'm skeptical of that. But she struggled with her emotions throughout her entire life. And it was a struggle in her life of prayer and in her relationship with God. She's one of the greatest saints of the 20th century. Padre Pio, great saint. If you have any Italian background, you know Padre Pio is like number one saint in all of Italy. He had a temper. And he didn't hide it from anybody. Sometimes he would yell at people in the confessional. Archbishop McNeil, our Archbishop two bishops ago, he had the blessing of actually celebrating Mass with Padre Pio. And he said that when they were in the sacristy after Mass, somebody burst into the sacristy trying to get a look at his stigmata in his hands, and he burst into the sacristy, and Padre Pio said, Vavia! Get out of here! He's this great saint. Or here's one of the most interesting ones. His name is Saint Mark Tianxiang, Chinese man. And he was killed by the communists in 1900, the early 1900s. St. Mark was a doctor, and he contracted a rather severe stomach illness. And at the time, one of the things they would use to treat it was opioids, actually a very pure form of heroin. And so he got addicted to it. He became an opioid addict. And so much so that because of the way that they didn't understand addiction at that time, his confessor when he would go to confession, confessing that he kept using it long after his illness had gone away, his confessor said, you're not showing any signs of contrition. I can't give you absolution. And you can't go to communion. And he spent his whole life going to Mass, like 30 years, as an addict, coming back to God and trusting in his mercy, but never being able to go to communion because he couldn't receive absolution. And he died a martyr. When he was given the option to deny his faith to save his life, he said no. A drug addict who is a saint. God works through the dysfunction. God does not despair of our dysfunction. He uses the imperfection of human life to bring about his grace. And I'm convinced that's part of the struggle for us as Catholics with actually going to the sacrament of confession. And I think that manifests itself in one of four ways, or maybe multiple ways in yourself. And see which category you fit in. I know which one I fit in. First is, I need my put-together list of sins before I get there. So I need to make sure that I've kind of settled myself down after having committed sins that I feel guilty for. I've kind of calmed myself down. I've sorted it out in my mind. I know where I've sinned. Then I go to my confessor. I don't just bring my messiness and go, Blah, that's what I did. I got to have it all sorted out. Second person, I'm not worthy. The sin that I've committed is so bad that there's no way God would want to forgive me for this. It's unforgivable. Third, I don't really have any bad sins. I've just got little sins. 
was not really needed, hiding ourselves from our own dysfunction. And the last one, I go straight to God. I don't need to go to the priest and confession to the sacrament. I just ask God for forgiveness in my prayer. Again, do we really face our imperfection and our dysfunction if that's the way that we're confessing to God? Confession is all about laying out my dysfunction, my imperfection, my weakness before God and saying, that's where I need your grace. God, work through my imperfection. Let your grace show itself through the way that I am imperfect. That's where God's power is. Not in this kind of idea of perfection, of holiness that we sometimes let take over our mind, but working through what is imperfect. Because my favorite line from Pope Francis is, love coexists with imperfection. Love coexists with imperfection. That's what happens with Abraham. God's love coexists with the imperfection of Abraham in his lack of faith and in the dysfunction of that society that permitted child sacrifice as a way of trying to bring about good. And God's saying, enough. I give you descendants. I give you a land to call your own. Trust in me. We see it in the saints, in their imperfection, in the way that God brings grace through their lives, even when they lack this idea of perfection that we have. And he does it in us. Am I willing to let God's grace work through my dysfunction, through my imperfection? Because God does not despair of our dysfunction.